Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode two. I'm going to start with a point that really could have been part of last the previous episode where we talked about some of the, um, the biggest differences and commonalities between the wine industry and the coffee industry. That is cupping or tasting. How often winemakers tasted wine versus how often coffee producers taste the coffee that they're producing. When I worked for different wineries, a huge part of my job was tasting the wine and to create these to create the blend that would eventually be the blend that was bottled and, and sold. This involved every day tasting the fermenting tanks. And you'd have to wait a couple of days because in the beginning it's really just grape juice and you'd get a tummy ache drinking that much sugar all the time. Um, but after a couple of days, after it was significantly, the sugar had gone down, there was some alcohol, we were tasting the tanks daily as they were fermenting to decide uh, how much skin contact they would have. And then after that, I'm talking about red wine. And after that, we would create a blend of all of these different tanks because each tank was not its own bottle um, to see what could be put together. And it would both be sometimes for convenience and then sometimes for the style that the winery was looking for. But this was every day tasting so many tanks, tasting um, once it was no longer harvest time, it was creating these blends, and then tasting these blends over time. So even if we had decided upon a blend, we would taste that blend multiple times. And in one of these wineries that I worked in, we would make a blend, and in searching for that particular blend, there were 12, 15, 20, 30 different iterations to get to that. And sometimes a difference between you know, blend 27 and blend 28 was a 1% difference. And it mattered because that was a 1% difference that you could taste and it could change the style of, of the wine that the winemaker was looking for. In contrast, it's a very small percentage of coffee producers that ever get to taste the coffee that they produce. It was incredibly shocking to find this out and then also shocking to find out how normal it was and how very few people saw that as a problem because it's, it's just the standard. It's what you do. Produ producers you know, can grow and process the coffee and then dry it and then ship it off, but they're not the ones roasting it. So sometimes they will get a bag sent back from a customer or when roasters visit, they will bring back a sample and they will get to taste their coffee, but it's after the fact. This is part of what I discussed last time in terms of a really long feedback loop. But for me, it's such a key to improving quality. So for winemakers, having that immediate and constant feedback and being able to tweak things on the spot is what leads to ultimate quality. It's having that reaction time. And with coffee, there's, so, there's a very strong drive for improving quality, but rarely is that conversation led with learning to cup coffee, learning to taste coffee, and having a much more immediate feedback loop. What this leads me to is another very big difference that I find between coffee and wine, where in the coffee industry, a lot of the style in terms of what the market is looking for is led by the consumer, the people who are buying the green coffee, and not necessarily from the producers themselves. In the wine industry, this is pretty absurd. 
this concept that the market would drive the flavor profile. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, one example I can think of is for high alcohol wines. You can, I made wine in California and there's a reputation of California wines, red wines being like fruit bombs and also really high alcohol uh, compared to European wines. Partially that is attributed to like the American persona, the American consumer wants a very strong wine. But that's not necessarily the consumer as much as California just has a lot more sunny days, more opportunity for the fruit to get ripe, riper fruit, higher sugar, therefore higher alcohol. So it's kind of hard to decide, you know, chicken or egg, which came first, the market for high alcohol wine for jammy high alcohol wines or the conditions for those wines and then kind of training the consumer and saying like this is american wine this is what we like um, because this is what california can produce compared to certain parts of europe where there's not as many sunny days the fruit cannot get as ripe and therefore the alcohol is a little bit more subdued i believe that in the wine industry there's a little bit more of a balance between what the climate and the location can produce and then what the consumer is then associating with that area and then kind of learns to like. What I've seen in coffee is that there's much more of a disconnect between the buyers and the producers and then also a lot of influence is coming from the outside. So saying a certain coffee audience likes a particular type of coffee and therefore asking the producers to produce that type of coffee. So whether the trend is towards naturals or towards really fruity coffees, uh, it's coming from the outside. Currently, historically, there's no other way that that could have happened. But I think now we've evolved beyond that needing to be the case. And so we've got a couple of things to untangle. One is the preference, the style being dictated from the outside in from the consumer or the buyer back into the producer, which is the opposite in winemaking, where it comes from the inside out, from what variety can be grown in this vineyard, in the soil, how the winemaker decides to make that wine and what that profile is, and then finding a market that likes that style and rewards that style. So for me, that's inside out. And I'm not saying that the wine industry is not also subject to particular trends, but much, much less so than, than the coffee industry. But another element of this conversation that I also touched on in last week's episode was the words that we use matter in the way that when we call coffee a bean, it cuts off these opportunities for improvement because we don't train ourselves to think of it as a seed, as a fruit, as an agricultural product that can um, improve with different practices. Um, calling coffee that I work with fermented coffees, um, using that word fermentation to describe the coffees is limiting. And this is what I want to unpack a little bit. And this is very difficult for me to talk about because I really don't know what the answer is. I, I'm still trying to work it out myself and I'm hoping through talking about it to having, you know, other opinions and having other perspectives, we can come to a better language. But I'm finding that a very significant limiting factor to improving quality and to improving um, general practices in the industry is how poor the language is. 
some of that has to do with it's a huge industry with so many different cultures and so many different just literal languages um, because coffee is grown all over the world. A lot is uh, lost in translation. But beyond that, there are terms that are scientific terms um, like fermentation or anaerobic or maceration that are also used colloquially that have been borrowed from science and have almost taken over, I'm sorry, taken up a new meaning based on where in the world they're used or who they're being used by. So there's very little agreement across the industry of what these words mean. And I think that when everybody defines it for themselves, that's important to keep these cultural differences, but it also makes it very difficult to share information when we think we're all speaking the same language. Yes, we all know what fermentation means. Okay, and then we move on. But fundamentally, we're talking about different things. And when the foundation itself is misunderstood or shaky, then building anything on top of that is very difficult. So I'm going to start with fermentation because it's a big core of my work. And it's a word that I see is, is very subject to this misinterpretation. What I do in my work that is different from what has been done is to process coffees with commercial yeast strains during the fermentation step. And this can sometimes be called, or people have, you know, I get emails or messages saying, you know, where do I get these fermented coffees? And that is in one way true. That is what they are. They are fermented coffees, but also it kind of implies that the fermentation process is unique to those coffees, and it's not. Like I mentioned previously, fermentation has been part of processing since the beginning. Almost all coffees, unless they are mechanically demucilaged or... Um, nope, that's about it. Unless you remove the mucilage mechanically with water and pressure, then all coffees are fermented. And that goes for dry process, natural coffees. Um, there's a fermentation element in those. Um, honey pulp naturals, washed coffees, wet process, all of these coffees have an element of fermentation. So asking for fermented coffee specifically, it sounds like we're being more specific. It sounds like we're asking for a particular type of coffee, but it can apply to 99% of coffees have a, a part of fermentation. So calling them fermented coffees is very vague and confusing. So I've also heard people say, well, yeast coffees, I want the yeast coffees, or um, saying, you know, I want coffees with no yeast. And that is also specific, but, all, but very ambiguous, because anytime there is a fermentation, yeast are part of it. So yeast and bacteria are found in the soil, they're found in water, they can be left in the tanks, they're on our skin, um, they are part of the natural landscape of the environment. And so anytime you have um, a coffee fruit, there are already yeast and bacteria on the surface, on, on the skin. And as that gets processed, uh, meaning as the, the skin is removed and you're either drying it on beds or you're pulping it and filling tanks, that yeast and bacteria that's in the environment, that's on the equipment, that's in the tank, that's part of the water, all of that is acting upon the coffee and having a spontaneous fermentation. So a spontaneous wild fermentation has been part of the process from the beginning. What's different 
is a um, intentional, a cultivated, a commercial strain of yeast that can be added to the tank that provides more control. Again, it's very rare that you would have a non-yeasted coffee. And even when you have coffees that are processed in that anaerobic style where they're underwater and lactic bacteria are highly encouraged because of the environment, just because you're encouraging a lot of bacterial activity doesn't mean that you've completely eliminated the yeast. So most of your flavor profile could be coming from bacteria, but you don't know how much yeast can also be in the environment um, symbiotically fermenting with the lactic acid bacteria. So calling them yeasted coffee or non-yeasted coffee doesn't really make sense to what's actually going on on a microscopic level. So I don't think we could call these coffees fermented coffees. And I don't think we should describe them either by yeasted coffees or non-yeasted coffees or bacterial coffees. Um, so another method of talking about these coffees is describing the process. So we're not going to say fermented coffees or you know just fermentation, but we're going to describe it. So some people say anaerobic fermentation. And this is one of my pet peeves. It makes sense. Like I understand why you would want to describe the environment around the fermentation, but that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what fermentation is. So fermentation is a metabolic process utilized by yeast and bacteria to get energy. It is how they survive and live. And that process by which microbes obtain energy from a primary source and have different byproducts is itself anaerobic, meaning that this process by which these microbes generate ATP, the energy unit of life, happens in the absence of oxygen. So fermentation itself is always anaerobic. It is part of the definition of the word. Like it sounds like it's more specific. It sounds like we're being more descriptive, but it's so redundant, it's almost confusing. It's like saying wet water. And we know that water is wet. Wetness is a natural property of water, so when someone says wet water, then it opens up, well, is there dry water? Is there some other type of water that I didn't know about? Like, what's going on? So describing the fermentation process itself as anaerobic is redundant. Now, some people can say, well, that's not what I mean. I meant the environment around the fermentation. And that's true. This fermentation could be occurring in an environment that has very low oxygen. So, for example, uh, something that has has been had the oxygen taken out so a tank where sealed and carbon dioxide or nitrogen or another inert gas is pumped in and that would be a low oxygen environment the tank itself is anaerobic um, so that fermentation it's still anaerobic because it's a fermentation but it's occurring in a low oxygen environment compared to a tank that was completely open to the environment and it was aerated and maybe mixed up and there was a lot of contact with oxygen. That fermentation would be happening in a aerobic environment, but it would still be an anaerobic fermentation in an aerobic environment. So to make matters a little bit more complicated, there is also the species, the type of yeast and bacteria that are present at the moment. Okay, so the species are where it starts to get really interesting and a little extra confusing. So I'm going to ask you to hang in there with me for a second, but I think this is really important in moving the conversation forward into how we talk about these coffees. So we're trying to describe the process 
by talking about fermentation. And then that doesn't quite work. So then we talk about the environment, right? And we're talking most of the conversation around the fermentation or the environment has to do with oxygen and describing things as aerobic or anaerobic. And what I want to say is that these microbes that we're talking about, yeast and bacteria, their relationship to how they use oxygen is really not, is not in line with how we're talking about it. So we're thinking of the oxygen environment as binary, right? As either having oxygen or not oxygen. And like I've mentioned, there's already a spectrum in the amount of oxygen availability in the environment. But there's also a spectrum in how these microbes use the oxygen that's available to them. So there are three main groups of microbes that we tend to hear about in coffee production, and that's acetic acid bacteria, lactic acid bacteria, and yeast. So those three groups utilize oxygen in, in very different ways. So acetic acid bacteria is an obligate aerobe, meaning that they require oxygen to, to live. And if you cut off the oxygen, if you create a significantly low enough oxygen environment, acetic acid bacteria will, will die out. They will not survive, they will not thrive, and you will not have them participating in the fermentation. So when you have a lot of oxygen available, for example, in a dry process or a natural process coffee, where they're up on a raised bed and there's a lot of oxygen obviously available, you have a strong amount of acetic acid bacteria activity, which leads to those very familiar fruity flavors that can tip over into um, a defect where there's too much acetic acid, which is also known as vinegar. Where it gets tricky is with the yeast and uh, lactic acid bacteria. So for example, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is a facultative anaerobe. So this means that in their metabolism, they get ATP from either aerobic respiration when there's a lot of oxygen available, but it can switch to a fermentation if oxygen is absent. So a yeast like Saccharomyces cerevisiae has the ability to switch its metabolism depending on the availability of the oxygen. So it's a very versatile organism. In contrast, lactic acid bacteria is aerotolerant, meaning that they grow well without oxygen, but if there is oxygen present, they have a protective mechanism that still allows them to survive. And this means that you can have a very similar environment, meaning a low oxygen environment, and you would have both of these yeast and lactic acid bacteria present metabolizing. So if you're labeling a process as lactic because it's low oxygen, then you're discounting an entire species that could also be responsible for flavor. So it's not very accurate. And to know, to know that you have completely displaced all of the yeast and that all of your flavor and your activity in the fermentation is coming from lactic acid bacteria, it's pretty difficult to determine. It requires sophisticated equipment to determine that that's the case. But I don't even think that's the point. I don't even think we should give, you know, one organism complete credit for the flavors that are going on in the tank because it's generally a collaborative effort between a lot of these organisms. So lactic acid bacteria and yeast are two very important organisms in coffee production. They are responsible for 
different flavors. They contribute different things to the coffee and they both function in very similar environments because they have a very different relationship with oxygen in their metabolism. So we're trying to fit them into this mold and they just don't play by those rules. So what I'm trying to get across is that there's a subtle distinction between how these organisms utilize oxygen and that they're playing by completely different rules than we're trying to use to label them and that they're both these both of these organisms can be active in the same space in the same environment and it's inaccurate to give credit to a single species when many organisms are participating and that labeling coffees this way is not particularly helpful. I think that we have this desire to label things because if we label it, then we understand it. But I think in this case, the information is so new that by labeling it, we're actually cutting off our understanding or we're, we're limiting our understanding because we think that we've, you know, we've named it, we've understood it, and then we're moving on. But again, the foundation is very weak. And so that's why for me, it's very important to not use these terms to describe coffee because they are inaccurate and they're also impeding a deeper understanding and progress into where is the flavor coming from and what is responsible and how do we have a different conversation around this topic. So why am I trying to confuse you with obligate aerobes and facultative anaerobes and aerotolerant organisms and lactobacillus and Saccharomyces cerevisiae uh, and acetic acid bacteria? Well, all of this is to say that the words that we're currently using to describe these processes are insufficient. So I'm, I'm making this a little bit confusing because it is confusing because there's a lot of layers and it's not enough to describe the coffee just by the surface process of fermented or not. And if we even get more specific and describe the environment and say, you know, an anaerobic environment or an aerobic environment, uh, that's not sufficient because we're not talking about the organisms themselves that are producing these flavor compounds that are ultimately resulting in the flavor profile. And if we try to describe the process by being very specific on the organism, calling it a lactic process or an acetic process, well, that's also not very helpful either. So I think in one way, we think we're being specific, we think we're being descriptive, and we think we're identifying the problem by labeling it, um, but what I've seen is that it's a false label. It's an unhelpful label, and it doesn't really describe what's going on. So my wrap-up and why I took you down this word rabbit hole and included all of these microbes is to say that this way to talk about coffees, I don't think is an effective way. I think that we're fooling ourselves into thinking that by being more descriptive, we're valuing the coffee, but we're also turning it into a commodity. So by trying to describe these coffees and by specifically looking for them or being a hunter for these types of coffees, we're missing the forest for the trees. And now it, this, the focus is so much on the process, which in a way is good because it the focus hasn't been there before, but it's just another way to commoditize the coffee and, for example, chase like a varietal, like saying you just want a geisha, really focusing on the relationship of that coffee, uh, the producer, the history of that coffee, just boiling it down, reducing it to the name of a certain process. I think we should pull back from trying to find the perfect name for these coffees and remember the larger goal of valuing coffee and being very different 
in the way that we approach buying coffee or drinking coffee or consuming coffee and thinking about the source and thinking about where it comes from and building the relationships and letting producers dictate the style that fits for them and then finding coffees that we like based on producer, based on region, based on relationship and not what we're calling a certain process. Okay, and now it's time for our first listener-submitted question. This question comes from Sebastian. Sebastian asks, Hello, Lucia. Is it possible to capture yeast from our environment in our own farms and apply these to the fermentation to create our own profiles? So I like this question because on the surface, it's a very simple question, but what he's asking about is a very complex and complicated process. So in this question, Sebastian has capture yeasts in, in quotation marks. And really the short answer, the simple answer to this question is just yes. Yes, you can, and you've already been doing that. So anybody who has been processing coffee from the beginning of time has been capturing yeast from their environment to create their own flavor profile. If you do nothing, if you keep doing exactly what you've been doing, this is what you're doing. You're capturing yeast from your environment. And, but what I think his question really is asking is how do you change that, those yeasts that you capture? How do you change the profile to be more desirable? And that is actually a very complicated question. Um, I think this also can come from, it's very common in the wine industry and in the brewing industry to have a mother tank, to have a, um, a house strain, a house culture that is kept alive uh, over a season or even over generations. Like in the case of cheese, there are certain starter cultures that have been you know, decades old. Is that possible to do with coffee? It is possible to do with coffee. I think it's very difficult to do because the environment is so variable in coffee. So if you think about where these other products are made, they're in incredibly hygienic um, sealed buildings and the effort that goes into maintaining a mother tank or a mother culture is immense. It's almost like having a, a patient in a hospital. You have to isolate them, you have to be incredibly clean, sanitized, hygienic, and you're constantly monitoring their vitals. You're checking on the temperature, you're checking on the humidity, you're checking on the dissolved oxygen content, you're feeding it a little bit so that it stays alive, but not too much so that it mutates. I mean, it is an intense process to keep that culture alive and consistent and healthy so that you can continue to use it and that it's a consistent profile. So the key to having a constant same mother culture is consistency, which is very difficult to do in a coffee mill setting. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It's just understanding like how much time you want to put into this and creating your own profile is a unique, almost like a fingerprint. Everybody's will be different because the yeast and the bacteria that are available in your location at that time are incredibly unique. But just remember that unique doesn't mean good. Just because you have something that's unique and that can only exist in your environment does not automatically mean that it's going to be good. I think that there is a shortcut that native is always better. And sometimes when we're speaking about flavor, it may not be better. And having the option to kind of move beyond what's native, what you know nature gave you for that specific location can be a really important, valuable tool for producers to break out of a traditional flavor profile and get into more creative ones. 
So thank you, Sebastian, for this question. I hope this got close to some kind of an answer for you. Um, if it didn't, you know where to send me another one. And if anyone else would like to submit a question for me to answer on this podcast, you can go to my website at lucia.coffee slash podcast and submit your own. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.